met my first like foster parent. Like, I don't think I knew such a thing existed in the world. I grew up in a really small town. So I don't think I knew that like there was this system and this program and like these people in the world. And I met him through work and it just, he wasn't like an amazing person. He wasn't an inspiring person. He was just like a normal guy who had a wife and they were like, yeah, we're going to do this. But it just struck me as incredible that sometimes when things don't go well in a family, kids get a second chance. They get a second chance at parents and a childhood. And I just thought, well, that must be the most incredible gift that one human being can give another, another chance at a childhood and people that love you. If you've ever wanted to put something out there in the world, but felt the pangs of skepticism, self-doubt, and fear of judgment, this is a podcast episode you are going to want to listen to. I couldn't be more excited to introduce today's guest, Jillian Johnsrud, who achieved financial independence at the tender age of 32 with five children, several of whom were adopted. There's no doubt that she's faced a tremendous amount of adversity on her journey and has overcome it. But I'd say the most interesting obstacle that she's learned to overcome is that own inner critic, not to mention the outer critics that anyone on the internet is highly aware of today. So she's on the show today to discuss her book, Fire the Haters, which is a practical manual on how to deal with internet trolls, but also imposter syndrome, which I think anyone who has experienced any level of success can completely relate to. I also want to add that if you leave a review on iTunes for us before the end of the year, you are eligible to win a $100 gift card. And not only will you be entered to win $100, but you will also potentially be featured as our reviewer of the week on the show. So leave your review and send me the review at Hello at moneyselfmade.com. Today's reviewer is BJ ESQ. And BJ has to say, funny yet insightful, Elise finds a way to make talking about subjects like money and productivity humorous and enjoyable. Thank you so much, BJ. That review made my day. What do you have to say on the show? Write us a review. Let me know so we can make this show more of what you want. And if you haven't already, remember to smash that like button on YouTube and hit subscribe wherever you're listening. It really helps us get our message out there of helping people achieve and reach their highest potential. Please help me welcome the tremendous success story, Jillian Johnsrud. My first big money moment awakening, I was probably about 12. My mom had been remarried to a guy for quite a while and it just, it wasn't going well. The family, the relationship, it wasn't healthy, didn't really feel safe. And I was the oldest of three and I came to her and I just said, we have to leave. Like this isn't working. I don't care where we go. I don't care where we live, but we can't do this anymore. And we were like right at the poverty line. And my mom, just a very practical woman was like, Jillian, I can't afford to raise three kids on my own. Like we don't have an option. And I remember I just went upstairs to my bedroom and I just cried. I cried into my bed, but I also had this epiphany of like, oh, money gives you options. Like I realized money was the only thing making this choice. 
in our family. And if I wanted to have different choices, if I didn't ever want to be in this spot, if I wanted to have more options, money could, could make that happen. And so from a young age, I just started saving, started saving every $5, every $20. And by the time I graduated high school, I was living on my own and I had saved up $8,000 and it, it felt true. Like even with that amount of money, I was like, oh, I have some options now. Like I have some choices. That is so beautifully put. I love that. And I think one of my favorite things about you is that a lot of times when I preach the financial independence movement, the pushback I get is like, oh, well, yeah, if you don't have kids, but you have been able to kind of be on this journey and also have a family. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We've adopted four kiddos and we have two biological. So right now I have five at home from kindergarten through junior high. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's, it's a lot. That's incredible. Actually. So I had budgets are sexy on the show and that's how we kind of were talking about you because he was saying that we both were considering adoption and just what an important thing it it is to do in the world, I think. So just major respect and good for you. Congratulations. It was something that I, I, I was passionate about from a pretty young age. I was probably 17 when I met my first like foster parent. Like, I don't think I knew such a thing existed in the world. I grew up in a really small town. So I don't think I knew that like there was this system and this program and like these people in the world. And I met him through work and it just he wasn't like an amazing person. He wasn't an inspiring person. He was just like a normal guy who had a wife and they were like, yeah, we're going to do this. But it just struck me as incredible that sometimes when things don't go well in a family, kids get a second chance. They get a second chance at parents and a childhood. And I just thought, well, that must be the most incredible gift that one human being can give another, another chance at a childhood and people that love you even into adulthood. You know, if you see adults whose parents didn't or couldn't love them well, they still feel those scars. Like that's just not something that that easily or quickly fades away. And I thought, yeah, I want to, I don't know if I'll be good at that. I don't know if I'm able to do that, but but I'm going to give that a chance. I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot. That is incredible. It gives me goosebumps when you talk about it. Cause I agree. It's such an important thing to do. Was it difficult to go through that process? How did you build this wonderful family and kind of follow the path to financial independence at the same time? When my husband and I got married, we had decided right off the bat that we would just say 50%. Some person had like given us that advice that, Hey, you know, if you guys are thinking about having kids, whatnot down the road, you should just You've been each living on your own income. Now that you get married, you should just live on one. And then that way you'll just have some options. You have some choices. Childcare is expensive. <laughs> and I was like, hey, that's that's a great idea. And there was just a, a perfect simplicity to it. And so we had started on that path and we ended up adopting our oldest when I had just turned 21, when we said yes to that placement. And Micah came to live with us when I was 22. And in some ways it was a little bit easier because he was older. He was in junior high at the time. So like, you know, he would go to school during the day while I worked. So it wasn't like having an infant or something, but we just kind of kept up with that. Like, we'll just save half. And thankfully we added kind of the bulk of our kiddos uh, towards the end of our FI journey. So we didn't have 
you know, all six at, at 22, uh, <laughs> they, they slowly came along. That's probably a good life decision. That was something my husband and I were thinking about as well as I love what you did. Cause I thought I had to be at the end of my fi journey to have kids, but it turns out that that's not true, which is very cool. Yeah. So, and you yourself, I feel like you have been kind of like a grown up from a young age as well. Is that right? I did move out. And so after my junior summer, I moved out and lived on my own throughout pretty much my whole senior year, lived with friends and whatnot, and then went off to college. I was still really close with my mom. So I still saw her every day, but I, I was kind of an old soul. And, and honestly, by the time my senior year rolled around, I was just over it. Like I wasn't feeling it at all. I was done with high school. Like I had front loaded a lot of my classes. So by the time I got to my senior year, I only needed like two more credits to graduate. So I kind of, and I was an honors society, which meant I didn't have to be present for study halls. So I kind of pushed all of my classes to the middle of the day and I commuted from another town and I rolled in at like 11 and I left at like two o'clock and then went, went to work. So my senior year, I kind of ghosted that year. That's even then I have to say really impressive, obviously, because your level of output and the things you've accomplished is like mind bending. So there's been many times that I listen to you on a podcast and just wonder how you do it all. So that's, but that's really cool. It sounds like you got a head start to working even in high school. Did you ever have any college debt you needed to work with? My husband did. When we got married, he had $35,000. He had went to a private school. I had done a year at like a small Bible, like community college. And so I was able to just kind of cash flow that year. And then I didn't end up going back to school until my mid twenties. At that point, I could just pay for that out of pocket and with scholarships and whatnot. But he had that $35,000. He also had $10,000 of credit card debt. And I had $10,000 of medical debt from being hospitalized my senior year. So we came into this thing with $55,000 worth of debt, which was a little discouraging, but it was a big part of the reason he ended up joining the military. They would pay off that $35,000 of student loan debt. So it was, it was one of those choices that I was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Like we'll join the military for four years. I'll pay off all this debt. This is amazing. Especially because we had picked very low earning degrees. We both had uh, this desire to help people and we were like, so we're never going to make any money, which I, I believed firmly until I was like 30 years old. But at the time, you know, all of our friends also had a lot of college debt, also going into low earning degrees. And I told all of them, hey, guys, this is an amazing option. You all should consider this. And everyone, this is like a reoccurring theme in my life. Everyone else was like, nah, we're good. There were a couple times in our journey when... I was like, oh, this is a really good financial decision. And like, no one else was excited about it. I think a lot of people who are into fire can relate to that. I've definitely done. I mean, we, we got into GameStop and I had that whole experience in December as well, where I was like, this is really cool. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, you're crazy. So. <laughs> amazing. What was your path to financial dependence? Like in those decisions that you made along the way, what were some of the best decisions that really like helped you get to that, that place? The simplicity of just saving half. There's always a lot of reasons why that's difficult. There's a lot of reasons why it can't work. You know, my husband, when we were first assigned, we were assigned to Washington, DC, like a really high cost of living area. Housing was super expensive. Transportation was expensive, but I always encourage people like there's someone, there's a group of people in your community 
who are making half of what you're making? How do they pull it off? Like, how do they make it happen? And oftentimes there's some pretty big kind of sacrifices. When we lived in DC, we ended up getting a housemate for like three years. And there again, I was telling all my friends, Hey, this is like a really great financial decision. You guys should consider it. And they're all like, ah, yeah, Jill, pass. We're adults. We have a family. Like we're not college kids anymore. We don't want roommates. And I was like, okay, cool, cool. But that one choice, especially when you're starting your journey, these things compound. So I can look back at that one choice and that saved us $25,000, which we invested and it ended up becoming 50. And that 50 allowed us to buy our first rental property. And that first rental property helped us buy our second rental property. So like if I rewind it, the kind of that one choice now provides $1,500 a month of passive income. And it's like a third of our kind of FI budget. And so front loading some of those, you know, maybe unconventional choices, it really compounds and makes a big difference later in the journey. So well put. And it sounds like there's the investing five people. There's the real estate, five people. Uh, There's obviously like the frugality sect, which would you say, or are you kind of like a happy balance of all of them? A little bit of everything. Our passive income split three ways. One is my husband's military pension. And then one is our investments. And then the other third is our rentals. I would say we were frugal in that we paid cash for our house. So we didn't have a mortgage. We paid off all of our debt. We didn't have a car payment. We didn't have student loans. So our monthly expenses were fairly low, but it was simply because we took out what generally constitutes the bulk of other people's monthly expenses. So when you take all of those huge expenses out, we just didn't have much left. And we had kind of designed a life that was really full and rich and entertaining But because we had more time, it didn't necessarily cost a lot of money. Like we live in Montana, live right outside Glacier National Park. We actually own like a little camping spot that we leave our camper. So like we get out of the house, we go camping every weekend. We do morning adventures, then like go hiking in the morning and we go to the park. So we have like this really nice lifestyle. It just happens not to be super expensive. Did you have a moment where you knew you hit financial independence or did it sneak up on you kind of slowly? It kind of snuck up on us in that we had gone away for a weekend, my husband and I. We had had kind of just a rough couple of years. Our oldest son had passed away unexpectedly. We'd bought a house. We'd remodeled it. We bought a rental. We'd remodeled that. I was working at a job I didn't like. Our three kiddos came to us as a group from foster care, and it was just tiring. But they had just asked us officially to adopt our kiddos. And so we went away for a weekend to like life plan and reflect and just be like, ah, I think we're like finally out of this really stressful season of life. And during that weekend, you know, we kind of looked at kind of our five numbers and where we're at and we were like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe another four or five years, maybe six or seven years. And then like, we should be like, good, good. And then we'll, you know, we'll make a switch. I remember we were getting ready to go out to dinner and like, I had this wave of like, nausea and not feeling good. And I found out a few days later that I was pregnant 
And at this point, I had our biological son was maybe seven. Our soon-to-be adopted kids were like six, three, and two. And I kind of felt like I was drowning. Like my husband was working a really stressful job, really long hours. And I just sitting in the doctor's office and I had actually had an appointment that day to get uh, an IUD birth control. But here I was instead with a positive pregnancy test. And I just cried. Like we had, we had wanted another baby, but at this moment in time, I felt like I had nothing to give. And so I'm just sitting there crying and my doctor's like trying to console me. Like we did fertility treatments. Like you really wanted a baby. And I was like, but it's just so full. Like my house is full and my van is full and my life is full. And like, it felt like a person who barely could keep her head above water. And now someone was going to hand me like a newborn. And so I went back to my husband and I was like, yeah, remember that, that five number plan thing? we're going to rework that because I can't do this. Like this isn't, this isn't an option. And so we decided that we would take a year off. I had kind of looked at the numbers and I was like, ah, I think it'll work. I mean, we're close. And now being on the other side where I coach so many people through this transition, the reality is no one ever feels great about their numbers. No one ever feels super confident. Everyone feels a little apprehensive. Everyone's like, I think the math works, but until you've tested it in real life, you don't know. And so we took off that first year just as an experiment. I said, I'm really into mini retirements. I'm like, this is just going to be another mini retirement. We're going to take a year off and we'll see how it goes. And if, you know, I need to go back to work or my husband needs to go back to work, totally cool. But no matter what, we need a year off to like just get our head above water and get kind of caught up on life. Thank you for telling that too, because, you know, I have a lot of women that I also work with and I hear their stories and uh, the kid thing is always a factor. Phrasing it as an experiment, because honestly it is, because we haven't done it before. So this is new and it's okay to not feel confident or have that clarity before you do something you've never done. And it's something I even talk about in the book because the book's born out of so many of these conversations of people doing new things and putting themselves out there and and worrying about like failure or rejection or what people will think. But it's the exact same with making that transition. You've never done it. And confidence and clarity come in doing. There's just no way you can sit on your couch having never done a thing and feel incredibly confident and have perfect clarity on how it's going to go. And so I think the first thing is just to embrace that it's an experiment and to set it up as a low risk experiment. And there's a whole bunch of different ways you can do that with networking and building connections and keeping in touch with coworkers. Oftentimes people... <laughs> I would say like 85% of the time, once they step away from their job, they get lots of job offers, way more job offers than they ever got when they were just working. There's a lot of weird psychological reasons for that. One of it is just that other people will feel a lot of dysregulation and a lot of discomfort with the idea of you not working. The idea of you not working and opting out of this system will make them feel discomfort and they will try to reconcile that by getting you working again. And it's not even entirely conscious. It's just, it's like a loop that hasn't closed. So there's a lot of ways you can make this low risk. And especially in the fire community, 
most people can find the 15, 20, $30,000, they need to cash flow six months or a year off and just say, we'll just experiment for a year and we'll see how it goes. And that's not a huge risk. You don't have to be at 4%. You don't have to have a million dollars. Like if you've got $30,000, like you have the freedom to run this experiment. And it's much easier to run a couple of these little experiments than to try to just pull the plug for good for the rest of your life. We decided to take this year off. We created kind of our dream to-do list, which is one of the things that kind of a tool that that I teach is just coming up with all the things that you would love to do. And some of our things you kind of need to do, like we needed to like finish our master bathroom and we wanted to declutter, but there were a couple other things. And one of them for me on this list, there was like 150 things on our list. I just wrote simply something to do with writing because writing had been a dream most of my life. Like I had, I had enjoyed writing when I was younger and I had thought about writing a lot in my twenties, but coming from my background, coming from kind of this low income, you really have to get paid on Friday. Like whatever work you do during the week, you really need to be paid on Friday because that's how you're going to buy groceries and that's how you're going to pay the bills. And so this idea of doing work that you might not see a return on for months or years felt indulgent at best and foolish at worst. And so I had never aggressively pursued it seriously because I didn't think it was something that I could have that I could do. Like it was for other people, people who were wealthier or more privileged or luckier than me. And so for me, becoming financially independent was kind of like giving myself permission to do the things that I had always really desired to do, but I couldn't economically justify. That's a recurring theme with a lot of entrepreneurs on the show, which is like that for six months, you just, you know, you're not making any money, but you know, Instagram and Forbes would lead you to think otherwise about the entrepreneurial journey. When did you get bitten by the Fi bug? Who was your first gateway or entry drug into this world? You know, I was almost financially independent by the time I really started reading a lot of content. So for me, it definitely started with books. I would say my first financial education, not necessarily FI, but just financial education was like David Bach in my early twenties. Like he's the one who kind of got me to like finally start investing and understanding that world. And so I'd read a lot of books, but I hadn't dipped my toe into the kind of blog until probably a year or two before we became fi and left our jobs that I started to kind of realize that there was all of this financial education online, which I'd kind of been unaware of up until that point. That's amazing. So you actually had thought of this before you were exposed to it. Yeah. And in some ways it was a blessing, honestly, because in the five movement specifically, there's so much oftentimes fear and scarcity, especially when I started, I definitely brought a different voice to it because I just had a different experience. But before I started, it was like, you just keep working. Like you have to make sure you're good. You have to make sure you never have to go back to work. Like 
make sure you are at least at 4%, but better like three and a half, better 3%, like just work a few more years was, was the total narrative. And I'm glad I wasn't exposed to that because I might've believed it. And before I started writing, there wasn't, there wasn't anyone talking about mini retirements. There wasn't anyone talking about taking a break or experimenting or doing kind of like coast fi or like that just hadn't entered the vernacular yet. So to some degree, I was glad that I didn't hear that because I might've just tried to suck it up and work for a few more years. And that was not the year to suck it up and work for a few more years. Like I I really honestly needed a break. So I started writing my first little baby blog, 2010, maybe. It was right after I was diagnosed with bipolar and I had another friend who was bipolar and we decided to write about this together. So we had like, we co-authored a blog blog. It was just us trying to process, us trying to explain to ourselves the joy and the struggle and the confusion and the happiness and the anger of all of it, of the diagnosis, of medication, of managing it, of people misunderstanding, us misunderstanding. And so I don't know if like, I think like 20 people read it. Like in all honesty, I think 20 people read it. I didn't care because we wrote it because we needed to write it. Like we, we honestly wrote it for ourselves because we needed to, to read each other's work and we needed to like try to sort this out with words on paper. And so after we became fine, we took this year off and I came back in and I wanted to write about personal finance and I wouldn't say I blew up enormously. But you'd mentioned Jay Money. He was running Rockstar Finance at the time. And I had reached out to him maybe a month before I started. And I had a couple articles that I was working with. And he just really loved my writing. And he loved one of them. So on the day I launched my blog, he put that in the Rockstar Finance newsletter and like, 8,000 people came to my blog on day one. You know, it wasn't a million people, but it was like a lot of strangers, (laughs) a lot of people that did not know me and I did not know them. And my little safe private corner of the internet where like, I was used to like 20 people interacting with my work. It was definitely a surprise and it kind of jump-started my blogging writing journey. That's so great. You know, it was still slow going. I remember the first like 12 months, I ended up with like 400 email subscribers and I worked so hard for that first 400 email subscribers. And then by year two, it was like 2000 and then it was 3000 and then 5000 and then 10,000. And sometimes I would have 400 email subscribers in a day. And I was like, well, that's a lot easier than that first 400 that took me a year to get through. You know, it was a lot of small inflection points. It was having those kind of breakout opportunities, but having 20 or 30 of them, they kind of got me more momentum. One that I start the book with because it was just such a disaster for me was it came just a couple months into blogging. I had written an article and it had gotten picked up for a curation site. So on a curation site, they'll post 10 or 12 different articles from authors every day. And they they had this massive audience, but the audience wasn't attached to any of these particular authors. You know, they just showed up for all of this content every day kind of like like a news feed. 
And I was so excited, you know, when you're just starting out and you get these opportunities, it was the first time, like a curation site picked up my work. I had submitted it. They had accepted it. Like it was just, I was like, this is it. This is amazing. But I didn't understand that authors almost never get to write their titles. Generally, the title is written by the publisher. And this is true for news titles, basically any articles. Uh, The author didn't write that title. Someone else picked a much catchier, much more inflammatory, much more clickbaity title. And that's what happened with my piece. And I didn't understand at the time this idea of kind of an apple cart moment when there is something in the collective that in this case, a large group of people had been shamed about. And then they picked a title that was very shaming. And people read that title and went straight to the comment section and just lost their crap. And I did everything wrong. Like I had no idea how to handle this. Because like I said, your online interactions are entirely different than your in-person interactions. So people didn't read the article. So I defended it. I did like I fought with people. I tried to explain. I just went rounds in the comments and it was such a mess. And I, I couldn't sleep. I was up in the middle of the night. I was binge eating. So again, I emailed Jay Money, who had been the one who had promoted my work initially. And I was like, how do you deal with this? Like, I'm not sleeping. I'm, I'm running all these conversations through my head. Like, I don't think I'm cut out for this. I don't think I can do this life. I thought this creative life was like an incredibly safe pursuit um, and it feels incredibly dangerous. And he just went, well, sweetie, you never read the comments. Well, what the hell? That's an option? Like nobody even told me that. But you could just like not read them. That was optional. I had inflicted all of this pain on myself for no reason whatsoever. It was a huge wake up call because I almost quit. It was like, I was inches away from saying, yeah, I'm not cut out for this. Like, this isn't a great fit for me. It's, it doesn't work with my mental health. It doesn't work with my psyche. Like, I obviously can't be a writer. You know, one little encouragement, like, pulled me back from, from the edge. And that was part of the inspiration of writing this book is that I know how many people can give up on their dreams and their hopes and their goals because they just don't have that like one little piece of advice that would mentally change the whole narrative in their head and make them realize you are cut out for this. Like you are good enough for this. Like this is for you. This isn't just for other people. This is a fabulous book that must exist in the world. And thank you so much for writing it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. There wasn't, it's one of those weird topics in that everyone who lives online has dealt with it and has struggled with it. And like eventually through a lot of pain and heartache, we all tend to figure it out and kind of land in the same space. But no one had ever like gathered all that collective knowledge together before. And so that was kind of my intention for this book, just to create like one easy, compact kind of A to Z here is like your survival guide for being a creative, for being an entrepreneur, for just putting things online and sharing with a bigger audience. Absolutely. That's so important. I remember when I started this podcast in the channel not too long ago, and my immediate reaction from a lot of friends and family was like, 
good luck with that. You know, I don't want to do that because I'm going to get terrible comments and it'll be horrible. And I'm really excited to say that I don't have any haters yet, but that's because haters, I tell everyone is a sign of success. So it's not always a terrible thing. I talk about in the book. It's good when you're starting kind of small because you're a little bit invisible, which while it drives us crazy, because we want like a million people to like, see the thing that we're making. It also gives you time and space to kind of hone that craft and to figure out like this internal framework of how to deal with when a million people see your work. Like I've, I've known some people that had a ton of exposure right at the beginning And honestly, there's like a 50-50 chance that they're going to crash and burn because how you deal with criticism and misunderstanding online is so different than how we deal with it in our real life. Since then, in the last six years, my life is so incredibly different than I ever would have even dreamed it could have been. But dealing with criticism online can feel pretty, pretty dangerous, pretty choppy water. It can be so heavy and scary. And especially when you think about like, death threats. And as humans, we tend to think that like it has something to do with us. You know, we're all a little bit narcissistic and we think that everything has a little bit of something to do with us or our work. Um, So I tried to create kind of funny personas to just help us understand why these people are behaving the way they are. And that it's like all on them. This is just who they are. This is how they move through the world. This is how they interact. Whether it's you or a hundred other people that they encounter, they're a specific character. And you just happen to be the person in front of them at that moment to make it a little bit less personal. Because the reality is it's not personal. They're too lazy for it to be personal. They don't know enough about you. Like they're not going to take time. They'll bomb you with one star reviews, but they're not going to actually read the book. It has nothing to do with your writing, your ideas, your thoughts, your stories or any of it. And so I tried to create a few different personas just to help us understand the motivations and what drives these people to behave this way. And one of them that I find particularly entertaining, partly because I had never heard anyone talk about this persona, and yet I saw it everywhere I went, was I named them the CEO of the internet because it's a funny kind of character that for some reason got it in their head that they're your boss, that they like run this space and they run this niche and they make all the rules and they get to decide like what's talked about, what's not talked about and what tone of voice and like what's allowed and what's not allowed. And if you step out of line, they try to reprimand you or shame you or try to like fire you. And it's so delusional because you're like, buddy, you're not my boss. Like, I honestly don't work for you. I'm not sure why you think that you get to act like my boss, but you're not the CEO. You actually have no impact on what I'm doing. But it can just be so confusing to encounter this person online. And even more confusing, I've made a little sub category of the CEO of the internet is the fake royalty. Because generally, these people have nothing to do with your industry. They're just onlookers. But occasionally, they're an insider. And they're a competitor, or they're another creator. And they've decided 
that they get to rule this kingdom, that they get to create all the laws and all the rules and anyone who steps out of bounds, like gets excommunicated or punished or like, it's a weird, like teenage immaturity kind of like mean girls vibe that they just, these people never grew out of. And and I've seen it like in every niche. I had a client who lives in Montana uh, and does massage, massage therapy. And there was a fake royalty person who was like super particular on like how massage therapists should be able to advertise their business. And if she stepped out of line, this person like, <laughs> like harass her. And I'm like... Okay, apparently this is universal. In every niche, there's someone who just thinks that they're the boss and they get to write all the rules. And until you understand this character and this weird personality trait, it's really easy to take it personally. And it's really easy to be affected by it. So it's just kind of creating that emotional boundary that like, and I talk about this a little bit later in the book about emotional boundaries, but like your problem actually isn't my problem. Your immaturity, your lack of communication skills, your lack of boundaries, that's not my work. Like, I'm not your therapist. I'm not here to, like, help you sort all this out online. You need to figure that out on your own. But, like, I can't be a part of it. I can't help you become, like, a healthier, more mature person on the internet. Because, like, I already have a job. I've already committed to my creative work uh, and being your therapist isn't my job. So best of luck. I included a quote from Chris Brogan said, I can't fix all the stupidity on the internet. I'm not the dumbass whisperer. And I think it's this understanding that there are people who are committed to misunderstanding you. They are committed to not getting the joke, not getting the point to, to twisting it and to convoluting it. And no matter how much effort you put in, they don't want to understand. They don't want to get it right. And if you take this on as your mission and your job, then that becomes your job to become the dumbass whisperer and to try to fix all the stupidity on the internet. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of it. So that's a full-time job with overtime. So you can either do that job or you can do the job that like you signed up for, which is to create things, but you really don't have time or bandwidth or emotional energy to do both. So when you meet someone that you're like, oh, wait, you're a dumbass. Like you just are committed to misunderstanding, to misinterpreting, to applying the worst intentions you can kind of just leave them be because like, that's not your gig. You didn't sign up to be the dumbass whisperer. And apple cart people are an unsuspecting group of, of haters in that they can be very nice people. They might've started their day with good intentions, but like all of us, we get bruises in life. Like we experience hurts and sometimes those bruises don't fully heal. And if someone pushes really hard with their thumb on the exact spot that that bruise is, someone will cry out in pain. And sometimes there's a collective hurt. So a whole collective will cry out and you're just going about your day, living your life. 
and someone cries out in pain and you're like, no, wait, what? I don't understand what's going on. It's helping to quickly realize that this honestly isn't about you. This is about them. Um, I had a situation where I wrote a guest post on a very big, very big website, lots and lots of comments. And I realized after I wrote it that I was like way overly flattering. Like the collection of stories I had strung together, like kind of made me seem superhuman. And like, I started to feel like as I started going through the comments, like, you're so amazing. You're so wonderful. And I was like, oh, shoot, like I should have like balanced out this narrative a little bit because like I, I skewed the picture here. I'm not that awesome. But then there was one comment that started off, you're the most selfish human being ever. And I wait. What? Oh, wait, wait, what? And she went on to explain why I was the most selfish human being ever. And like, not in a cute joking way, in a, you're a horrible human being that should be ashamed of yourself kind of way. And the story she outlined, first, my mind started spinning of like, wait, she misunderstood. Like, wait, no, that's not what happened. Like she, that fact isn't like, that's not actually the story. And then I stepped back and I realized oh, this is her story. Like this isn't, this isn't my story she's responding to. And I don't know what character she played in the story. I don't know if she was the daughter. I don't know if she was the mother. I don't know if she's the one that stuck around in an unhealthy situation. I don't know if she's the one that left, but it's not about me. And when you can come to that realization, instead of being hurt or angry, you can just be empathetic. And that there are people that are hurting in the world. And no matter what you write, it's going to press on that bruise. It's going to, it's going to press on that trigger for people and they're going to respond. And that's okay. Like that's how we learn and grow. And those are the moments we realize, oh, we have more work to do. I thought I had resolved that. Um, and yet here I am. And maybe I should go back to therapy because this is obviously still a deep bruise. So wise, so well put. And I, you know, I'm a huge personal development psychology geek. And it's so funny because I've learned that we do tend to recreate these trauma scenarios throughout our life. Usually that happen at kind of like a young age. Yeah. That's somebody's work. You know, I talk about in the, the story, I have a lot of compassion because like I've been through therapy, like I've been hospitalized. I've, I've done the really difficult, horrible work. I've done extensive therapy. I've done inpatient therapy. I've done outpatient therapy. I've done like 30 hours of therapy in a week. And it's so difficult and it's so much work, but there is a person that that's their job. You know, I've sat in front of like the emoji feelings chart. And I've tried to figure out what emotion I'm feeling and I've tried to label it. But the thing is as entrepreneurs, as creatives, like unless we're licensed therapists, unless we own an emoji feelings chart, unless this person has signed on as our client, that's not our work. That's somebody's work and bless them for doing that work, but it's not ours. And we can't take it on, on the internet when you're right, people are trying to recreate things and they're mixing your story with their story. And they're trying to like repeat patterns and like, that's not my job. And so learning to kind of like be compassionate and understanding, but release that is so helpful because that will just, 
that is a full-time job. And unless that's what you signed up for, it's not yours. I have had that issue. There's this quote that like, be careful when you fight trolls for less, you become one or something like that. Mm. So that really reminds me of just kind of being on the front lines of the internet. Emojis can't really sub for our facial expression. I loved your whole section on imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to dive in deeper for people who maybe are thinking about putting themselves out there, but are terrified of not being good enough. I think the the trickiest part about this, this internal critic So I dedicated the whole second section of the book to the internal critic, partly because that external critic pushes on our internal critic. It amplifies our internal critic voice. You know, when we get hate online for something that we have no insecurity or doubt about, we don't care. Like I'm very tall. I love being tall. I actually really wanted to be two inches taller than I am. So like when people say something negative about my height online, I'm like, whatever. Like, I don't care. Like, I wish I were taller. (laughs) You have no idea what you're talking about because I don't have that internal critic on that topic. But living online amplifies this internal critic. So it's something so important for us to sort through and to kind of make peace with because if it's there it will get pressed on. It will get amplified. Someone at some point will say the thing to you that you feel the most insecure about, and they will shout it at you. That's devastating. A lot of it, imposter syndrome and like worried you're not being good enough. It sounds crazy, but to some degree, the biggest remedy is just agreeing. You're probably not good enough. You can't start by being the best. Like it's just not how skill works. If you've never played basketball and you go to like an NBA game, you can't sit on the bench and go, I think I would be awesome at that. You know what? I think this is like my perfect career. I should probably just go down there and I'll be like better than everyone else. Like it's not, it's not how skill works. It's not how confidence works. It's not how clarity works. It's just through the process of being like, you know what? I'm not the most experty expert and that's okay. I don't have to be the very best. I don't have to be the most skilled. I don't have to be the most qualified to be helpful and to be useful and to add value and to serve a certain demographic. You only think about the most experty expert. Are there people better than me? Absolutely. Is there someone who could have written this book better? Probably a thousand people could have written this book better than I could have. But is the book still helpful? Is it useful? Will it serve a purpose? Yeah. I'm the one who raised my hand and I'm the one who did it, but I don't have to be the best writer in the world to write a book. You don't have to be the most insightful to share your ideas. And especially when it comes to like freelancers, even as a coach, there are so many coaches that are better than me. I could list a dozen who are probably better than me. And yet... I'm still the best choice for someone. My availability, my price point, my perspective, my story is still a better fit for someone than the most experty expert out there. There's still space for you to serve and to exist and to practice and to get better. And I think it's that You know, there's a great quote by Ira Glass about our skill not matching our taste. 
And it's so difficult. It's so difficult because we get into this because we have great taste. No matter what that is in, we have great taste. We know great work. It killed me writing this book because I have great taste in books. I've read a thousand books. I've read amazing books. Is my very first book going to be better than the best book I ever read? Is it going to be in the top 1,000th of percentage of like, no, it just can't. Like, it doesn't work that way. You can't produce the very best thing, the first thing out of the gate. But the people who become the top of their field are the people who can just live in that discomfort. And it's like dry stacking a stone wall. Every stone you place falls short of where you need the top of the wall to be. And you just have to be okay with that. And you have to stack the next stone. And you have to stack the next stone and everyone falls short and everyone isn't where you need it to be. But that's, that's the deal. That's the gig. It's kind of what we signed up for. And with imposter syndrome, I view it as, as a positive thing. Like the only people who feel imposter syndrome are the ones who are trying are the ones who care, are the ones that are growing, the ones who are putting themselves out there and pushing their boundaries and trying to stretch themselves. And they're showing up as a professional because a hobbyist who never ships their work, who never claims that they are the thing that they have created, who just does it as a hobby, you don't feel imposter syndrome. I'm a hobbyist in a lot of areas of my life. I watercolor paint. I've never (laughs) claimed to be a painter. I've never claimed to be an artist. I don't show anyone. And I've never felt imposter syndrome because I'm not a professional. I'm not shipping that work. I'm not standing behind that work. I'm just messing around on a Saturday morning. And that's great. But if you want to be a professional, if you want to show up, if you want to grow and try and expand, the result is you'll feel imposter syndrome. You'll feel that gap of where you're going and where you are right now. And so every time you feel that, like you have to view it as a positive thing. I think about it like going to the gym. If you've never gone to the gym before and you've never worked out with any intensity and you've never sweated, you could go there and you could freak out. Like you'll be on the treadmill. You're like, oh my gosh, there's like water coming out of my head. Like what is happening? Like this is horribly wrong. I should leave and never come back because this does not seem healthy or natural. But if you know, like if you get on the treadmill and you work hard, you might sweat and that's okay. That means you're actually doing the exact thing you need to do to get where you need to go. And it's the same with imposter syndrome. If you're showing up and you're doing the work and you're feeling that imposter syndrome, you're doing exactly what you need to do to get where you need to go. If anything, imposter syndrome, I think is a like you said, a good sign because there's a lot of people in that space who will talk really loudly and often people will totally go along with it too. But then if you can get yourself over that hump and then you realize how much there is that you don't know and how that's always like the really scary part. So is your prescription for that to just recommend that people just kind of keep putting one foot in front of the other and laying those bricks? Always, mm-hmm. always. It's okay to have some under-earned confidence. Like sometimes we need that to just get us going, but know that like there's fallout on the other side. You can think you're all that in a bag of chips, but you might've just been like a really big fish in a really small pond. And soon as you get into a bigger pond, you'll be like, oh, I'm not so big anymore. But that's what you need to do. You need to get into bigger ponds. You need to be 
in spaces where you're not the biggest fish there, because that's how you grow. Like fish will only grow to the size of water they have. And you can max out spaces. You can max out projects. You can max out kind of your, your friend group. And you just need to get in different, different ponds where you're like, oh, I'm not so big. There's a lot of other people who know a lot more than me. And this is a really great thing. It's really good that I'm here. I absolutely love that. So how would you say, I mean, do you think that the only way beyond this kind of like area is to just ship, create, produce, you know, do you think that a certain level of training or schooling needs to go into it? Or do you think that that's just a segue into analysis paralysis where you're not getting anything out there and therefore getting the feedback you need to get better? Yeah. I talk about this in the book. There's a fine line and I call it uh, procrastination via preparation. It's so, it feels so much safer. It feels so much comfortable to prepare and to prepare and to prepare and to prepare. But at some point, preferably sooner than later, you do have to ship. You have to put your work in front of people. You have to interact with people. You have to let your work interact with people. Uh, You can't just tinker with it behind the scenes forever. And that's the part that's scary and it's hard and it's vulnerable and it's tough to allow your work to grow up and to be a full grown person and to let it go out into the world and to live its own life and to be successful and to fail and to interact with people and to make a ruckus and to have its life separate from you. You can't keep it in house. Like you can't keep it under your wing forever. At some point you just have to let it go out and do the thing it was created to do. And that's it's scary and it's hard and it's yeah, that's that's the process. And so especially when I'm working with clients, like we have to figure out like is this are you procrastinating? Like is this fear or is it time to ship? And nine times out of ten, it's time to ship the work and then just make it better later. That's one of the reasons I I was really excited to start a blog, even though I hear most bloggers cringe at you know their first couple of articles because they feel like they've grown so much. But that's I think the only way you can do it is kind of start learning publicly, which is very painful. But at the same time, it, it keeps you from getting into that analysis paralysis. In fact, I was really excited to start writing a formal fiction writing lately. And I know nothing about what I'm doing. And it's amazing because I don't know what I don't know versus entrepreneurship, which I studied and prepared for so long. Mm -hmm. What is the experty expert? So I think we have this, this, this idea of like, there's, there's the top of a field and they're the most experty expert. And this is this is the people we compare ourselves to. Why we pick the very top of our field, the people who honestly have probably been in the game 10, 20, 40 years, which is why like they're the most experty expert. But that's the point of, of our own insecurity. It's like, we're not them. We're not the most experty expert. We don't have that depth of knowledge, that depth of experience. And so it leads us to, to question, like, are we good enough? Are we qualified enough? Like when there's someone who can do something better than me, is there space for me to show up at all? Why should I show up? 
when there's someone who's obviously better than me. In the book, I use the example of Meryl Streep, who's one of my favorite actresses. Like she's just amazing to me. She is the most experty expert, but should she play every role <laughs> forever? Should, should there never be another space for another actress? Like, is that actually better if we have the very best do everything? Sometimes the less qualified is the better option. And so I encourage people to start where you're at. You know, I look at coaching's a great example because you can study and you can prepare and you can learn, but honestly, you get better by doing it. You get better by the number of hours you log with clients. And people are like, should I start when there's people who are better than me? But there's a place, you know, and and maybe that's in your pricing and maybe that's in your availability and maybe that's in your approach and maybe that's in your offer, but there's a place at the table to where you will be the very best option for someone And this is true if you're a graphic designer, if you're a freelance writer, like whatever skill you're offering, it's okay that there's people who are better than you. It's okay that there's people who are more qualified and more experienced and more educated. Like that doesn't deter from your, not just your helpfulness, but you're being someone's very best option. And I think that's where we get hung up. Can I do my thing when there's people who are clearly better than me. Yeah. I I love that. I also wonder that to myself when it comes to perfection, perfectionists obviously want everything to be perfect, but then does that even exist? Right. And like, I love the taste thing, but what is good and what is bad and who are we to, who are we to say? So I really, really respect that. I like that a lot. I mean, you talk about cancel culture in the book, which is such an important topic. What are your thoughts on that and how we can handle it? I think we have to start by defining what it is and what, what our fear is, because there are extreme cases. There are crazy things that happen online, undoubtedly, but most of what gets labeled cancel culture, no one's actually getting canceled. Sometimes it's just us making a mistake online and people being upset. And we can't live in fear of that because the reality is, unfortunately, like we have to be human and we're going to make mistakes. And if you're online, a whole bunch of people are going to notice that you made mistakes and they're going to point that out. (laughs) So we're really good at pointing out other people's mistakes, but that doesn't mean you're canceled. It means that you're human. And sometimes a whole bunch of trolls and people with pitchforks who do this, like as a hobby will show up to just dump on you. But you have to understand like they were never your fans. They were never your audience. They were never your customer. Like their hair is like weekend dress up. And then they're going to go on to the next thing. And it's actually really difficult to convince someone to not like something they like. If your fans and if your customers like you and they like your work and they like your product and they like your perspective, it's really tough for someone to come in and say, Actually, I don't think you like that. I talk about this in the book too. Like people just get their own opinions. You can market something and you can convince someone to try something, but how they feel about the thing they tried is entirely up to them. And nobody, we trolls, nobody gets any say in how someone feels. 
about the thing they just experienced. And so a whole bunch of like pitchfork people can come onto your platforms and try to convince all your fans to hate you. But like people like what they like and they want what they want. And if you're providing value and if you're continuing to show up and if you're staying true to like what adds value, it's tough to remove a market. And honestly, I think we all have like one person that we wish was canceled. Like it's actually not that easy. Like they just keep showing up and like they haven't been banned from the internet yet. And like, I don't know what form I submit to officially cancel this person, but they just keep existing because they add value to a certain segment of the population. And I actually get no say at all in that. So true. And like one of the secrets of virality actually is controversy. Um, I think the two viral emotions are awe and anger, which I have known how to deploy myself if I want to use those toolkits as horrible or scary as it might be to be stuck in the middle of a controversy. It can also be maybe good for your career if you know how to handle it properly, which is something you also outline in your book, which I think is so important. What is your kind of like break glass in case of emergency go-to guide for when someone experiences one of these things? Turn off the internet. Like the internet, when things get like spun into a frothy, angry fury, the internet really wants you to engage and really tries to suck you in. And you can just turn it off and you can go outside. You can go for a walk. You have to create that separation of like online life and real life life and online. You can turn on and off and nobody can physically drag you back into that space. And so if things are like super overwhelmed, just take a break and talk to people who ground you in like things that you know are true. And you might need to take a break for an hour. You might need to take a break for a month. But the people who love your work will be there at the end of it. And so if you feel like (laughs) you're starting to untether and kind of lose your grip, go for a picnic, go for a walk, go out to dinner, leave your phone in a cupboard and, and everything will be there tomorrow. I think actually that's one thing I've learned. No response can get really tricky. I think that um, I heard you talk in an interview about the whole Robin Hood ordeal where they weren't responding. So people could just speculate versus like you said, where you just get in the thick of things and it's like the bartender trying to stop the bar fight and and all of that. What would you say is like the right middle ground approach for when you do return to your screen a couple of days later, a day later to to respond to the trolls. I think it is important, especially if you're a company or you have a product to lead the conversation and to lead the narrative and to apologize. You know, if you've messed up, just like a really open and frank apology is like water on the fire. You get a lot of smoke, but it pretty much puts things out after that smoke clears. You know, I think the best time to kind of step away is when you haven't really done anything wrong. It's not a product issue. It's not a company issue. It's some segment of the internet just tipped over their apple cart and they're in a frenzy and it's a bar fight. The one thing you shouldn't do is to jump in the mix. The number one rule of bar fights is the bartender can't start throwing punches. Like you need one sane person in the room. You can't get sucked into the fight. And I've seen people who've kind of messed up and just said, you know what? I need to need to take a step back. I need to take a break. It's kind of interesting right now in 
I don't know, pop culture, Rachel Hollis put out a video that people were upset about and she got a lot of blowback and said, yeah, I need to work on this. And for a person who posted five times a day on Instagram has been basically blackout quiet for like eight weeks and just said, yeah, I'm working on this behind the scenes. I need to like do some personal growth. And that's an acceptable approach. And I've seen other people, I mentioned in the book, uh, Jen Hatmaker was a Christian author, numerous books. She came out in support of gay rights a few years ago, and it was like a hurricane of anger, just a hundred mile an hour winds for months. I've never seen the internet turn on a person for that long. And it was, it wasn't even just random people. It was her audience was so angry for such a long time. And she took the approach of sorry, but not sorry. That's what I think. And this is what I believe. And I get that you're upset, but not changing my mind. So you can leave if you want, uh, or you can stay. Doesn't really matter to me, but this is what I'm doing now. So and they they didn't drop it. It was amazing. I've never seen like a community of people be so angry for so long, but she just kind of stuck to her guns and was like, and eventually half of her audience left, which is enormous, uh, almost never happens, but like a whole new 50% joined. And she found the people that she's really for and the people who want her message and the people who want her work. And it's a much happier place. So if someone figures out that your work isn't for them, that's okay. It's good that they figured that out. It's fine for them to leave. Like whatever you've created isn't for everyone. And the best thing a person can do is figure that out for themselves and show themselves out the door. Um, Because it does make more space in your life to authentically show up for who your work really is for. When it comes to apologizing, I mean, the thing about cancel culture, it's a shame because it's almost like if you're a creator, you're growing on the internet. Um, So I've heard authors talk about like how they wrote a book that makes them cringe, but they're not going to take it down because it was like part of their creative evolution and their creative growth. So I kind of like that, but it is, I think that that's a perfect example of what you mentioned with the audience is that you're going to grow online and sometimes you're going to pivot your channel from like, you know, the little kids that started on YouTube and makeup tutorials. And now maybe they're doing real estate and and that's okay to grow beyond your audience and vice versa. What is the one habit, quality, or action you've taken that's made all the difference in your success, would you say? Reading books. Yeah. I started reading a book a week, probably 15 years ago. Yeah. It's been transformative. It not only helped me grow, but just expanded my circle, expanded my thinking, expanded my perspective way outside of the group of people I could have collected in real life. Such a good answer. I'm all about that as well. What is like your favorite tools and tech stack that's helped you be an entrepreneur, solopreneur, content creator? Are there any go-to tools that save you a lot of time that you swear by? So I wouldn't say tools so much as people, hiring people, training people, like having good employees around me, um, other professionals has been an absolute game changer in my business. And it took me a long time to figure out how to find people, how to hire people, like how to keep people without driving them crazy. But it's been, it's been a, a high ROI for me for sure. 
Uh, there's no way I could do the things that I do without all the people that support me behind the scenes. That's a whole episode that I'd love to do with you in itself. How how big is your team right now? Probably seven or eight people. There's some people who work on a very kind of project basis, like my editor. You know, I just send her stuff whenever I need things edited, but not necessarily every single week. Actually, on that note, I'd love to hear as someone that does put stuff out on the internet and a lot of people who have been bitten by, you know, that tweet in 2013, how would you suggest that they respond to like that old content? Or do you ever cleanse out your past content Mm -hmm. to make room for the new stuff? I probably remove 20% of my content every year because it wasn't good enough. It wasn't quality. It was the best I could do at the moment. And it was just that stepping stone until I could do something better. So yeah, I probably, I probably take down about 20% a year and I try to, I don't necessarily remove things because I've grown. I remove things because they just weren't that good. Or if I do, if I make a mistake and I'm hurtful or offensive or something personally, I pulled that from the internet. Uh, I know some people who leave up hurtful, offensive things, but I would never want to hurt a new person to prove a point that I've grown. I would just rather tell people uh, in retrospect, like, here's how I used to be a jerk in real time versus like, letting it live there. That's really cool. I also, I mean, for me, one thing I've learned is just like taking ownership and responsibility for mistakes, even if they weren't yours, because just that kind of like sphere of control and influence is so key. So even if something wasn't necessarily to my fault, just taking responsibility for it, even in the form of an apology is actually quite powerful. And that's something interesting I've seen companies grapple with because there's sort of like a a liability to saying sorry Mm -hmm. from a lawsuit perspective. So just kind of picking and choosing when, but for me personally, I, I like to sort of lean on that method. Tim Ferriss has an approach that He's like, I would rather air all of my dirty laundry than have someone try to blackmail me. So he's like, I've never pretended I'm perfect. I'll, I'll be the first to talk about my mistakes. And for me, I had, I had a mental breakdown, shoot, let's see, I was 27, maybe. So like 10 years ago. And a lot of that was the accumulation of like trying so hard to be perfect to meet everyone's expectations and to like always project all of the good things. So in coming into being a content creator, I decided for my mental health, for sobriety, for a number of reasons, like I just have to be fully human. I have to be able to be my mistakes and to be my growth and to be my weaknesses and to be my imperfections because the cost of pretending to be otherwise is too high for me. That is incredibly wise. I totally went through the same thing in my twenties as well. And it was such a relief to finally become as comfortable as one can be with their own imperfections. But, and I, I just have to say too, I, I love that you talk about your experience with bipolar. I have a lot of friends who have that as well. And sometimes feel like it's a barrier to maybe what they want to do in life. What would you say to those sort of points of mental health? It's an interesting condition in that unlike just depression or anxiety, which feels very separate from us and something that we just want to remove that piece so that we can be us. Um, Bipolar is for me, at least very intermeshed 
into who I am. It's not something I could just like skim off the top and still be who I view myself as. It's so core into my personality and my rhythms and my lifestyle. And it's a difficult thing to make separate from me. There's a lot of upside. It's it's also a condition that uh, there's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of uh, genius and excitement and enthusiasm and optimism that can get packed into that, that can help you overcome and, and move into new spaces. But there's also uh, another side that's incredibly debilitating and incredibly overwhelming and difficult to manage. And it's both. It's learning to, to manage the, the difficult parts, learning to know my limitations, to know my parameters, what I can and cannot do and, and honor that, uh, while also take advantage of every good thing it has to offer because you have to, or else, or else you just get the side. <laughs> like you have to like take advantage of the good side of it. And so it's, it's learning to do both and kind of living in that tension of this is so much a part of who I am and my personality. Uh, I think about it more like, I think about it more like a personality type, introverted, extroverted, or things like that, than an illness in that I can't not be bipolar. Like there's no medication that makes me not me. It's not something that gets cured or healed or removed from my body like like a sickness. It's just how I'm wired and how I see the world and how my energy ebbs and flows and how my perspective ebbs and flows. And so, yeah, making the most positive and the least negative as possible. Yeah. I just, I really like removing the stigma of that as um, like mental illness. And most recently, you know, it just is who you are and it's so empowering to learn how to manage it. And mm-hmm. then you're, you become so much, it's just like embrace who you are instead of trying to fit into this box yeah. that society's created. So yeah. do you have any specific ways that you've learned how to work with your personality type to, because obviously you're very brilliant and have done incredible things. So what would be your tips to somebody to who's looking to manage that and be successful? I think to manage bipolar, the most honestly practical tip is just get enough sleep. Sleep is so absolutely critical. When the wheels fall off on your sleep, everything goes downhill rapidly. So whether, you know, you need to use medication or medication to manage the anxiety or the depression, or just work more closely with a family doctor or psychiatrist, the sleep is so critical. And I would say it's when I talk to people who are wondering if they have bipolar, um, that can be outside of enormous episodes, which is how people are typically difficult diagnosed. I generally ask people about if they're hyperproductive in the middle of the night, because as humans, we are not designed to go running in the middle of the night, to work on projects, to have fits of inspiration or urgency. If it's 2am and you're like getting out of bed to be engrossed in a project, that's, that's atypical. That's when we should be sleeping. So if if you struggle with that, it's a good thing to to mention to a doctor. If the diagnosis for most people is terrifying because the behaviors on the ends of the spectrum are terrifying. Like it's it it really can go very badly. We fear if we get that label, we'll become those things. But the reality is you're just you. No matter how you 
learn about yourself, no matter how you figure yourself out, you're just you. And, and a word associated with that isn't going to make you different than you are. So if you don't have these extreme behaviors, being labeled bipolar will not give you those extreme behaviors. Like you still just get to be you, but it can give you a lot of insight and a lot of tools on how to manage that energy. For a lot of people, it's kind of like the waves in the ocean. Like it's just this steady ebb and flow, but our waves tend to be a little bit more extreme, a little bit taller, a little bit lower. They, they move with the cycles of the moon and, and other random things that we don't see. And it's just making sure it's not like tsunami level. Like if we can stay in that like three to eight foot wave, we're pretty good. It's just when things get a little bit more elevated than that, that you're like, oh, this is a rough ride. Like I'm getting nauseous. I'm not having fun anymore. I had an interview and they asked me about in like, you know, is, are you doing well? Yeah, it's very consistent right now. And they're like, okay. And they, they interpreted consistent as in stable or steady. And I was like, no, it's consistent. Like the ocean. I described it when I first went on medication, it was like I had lived my entire life on the ocean. And, and if you ever watch the, the movie Waterworld, when at the very end, they finally go on land and they get nauseous and he goes, Oh, it's just land sickness. Like you'll get used to it. It was very disorientating for me. The first time I just got plucked onto land and I didn't have that rhythm and I didn't have that motion. It was, it was very disorientating. And, and most people, you know, which is part of the reason why bipolar um, tends to be not medically compliant because we've lived our entire lives on the ocean and it feels very disorientating to be on the land. That is a beautiful, really interesting analogy. I like that. I like that. I can see why you're such a talented writer. Is there a mainstream or widely accepted belief that you strongly disagree with? And if so, why? Kind of like what we've been talking about to, to kind of go back to the book, the idea that you have to be good enough to start. You have to be educated enough or qualified enough or talented enough or skilled enough to earn your place to begin. And if you aren't, it creates all this dysregulation around people around you. Like, well, who are you to do that? Like, why are you, have you even studied that? Like, are you even any good at that? Like everyone's so confused and so uncomfortable with us stepping into things that everyone around us would say we're unprepared for. And I, I dislike that idea because we all start where we start. You have to start at the bottom. You have to start before you have the knowledge and the skill, like you can't develop skill if you don't start doing the thing that develops the skill. And so I would say that's something that it's so countercultural because I think it just makes everyone around us so uncomfortable, but it's absolutely critical. Like you can't wait until you're good enough to begin. Like it just doesn't work that way. I wish it did. Like if there was any possible way it could work that way, I would be all for it uh, because I hate not being good enough. I hate disappointing myself. I hate being mediocre at things. So I wrote the rough draft of this book, 2020, September through December. I edited it in December, edited it in January, got it really cleaned up, had a bunch of test readers. I printed this puppy off. I took it to Cabo and I started reading it. And I was like, this is a mess. Like, this isn't good at all. What was I thinking? And I rewrote the entire book, but I couldn't have rewritten it 
if I didn't write that first one, it couldn't have gotten here. If I would have waited for like me magically to be a better book writer, I didn't know how to write a book until after I wrote one that was an absolute mess. And then I was like, oh, okay, now I get what does not work and I can try again. That really inspires me. You're absolutely right. Like you need to have something to edit in the first place and you're never going to get that writing down if you're judging yourself constantly with that inner critic. Do you want to talk a little bit about your coaching services and what you offer in case they are relevant to our listeners? You can find out more information on my site, jillianjohnsroom.com slash progress coaching. I do two types. I do kind of a five focus for people who are on the five journey. We really kind of look at your plan. We kind of figure out, especially how to make transitions. Like you're making good progress. You're ready to like leverage some of that freedom. We kind of map out that transition. Uh, It's a little bit of numbers. It's a little bit of fear and hesitation. It's a little bit of, oh crap, can I really do this? And then I do some kind of more business online entrepreneurship coaching for coaches and freelancers and, and content creators who are, yeah, who are getting out there and doing this. And it's, I'm incredibly grateful for both sets of clients because it's out of those hundreds of conversations that this book was born. This book in some ways, I mean, it's a very positive, sometimes funny, sometimes lighthearted book, but the reality is if you strip away that it's, here's a hundred hesitations and fears and concerns. Here's a hundred problems. And it, it was through all of those conversations with clients and with creator friends and entrepreneur friends that we figured out the solutions. We figured out what helped people make progress. There's that. And then I do have two courses, one currently, and then one will be coming out actually this week. Should have been out two weeks ago, but I was in the hospital. So we pushed it back a little bit. <laughs> you absolutely are justified. <laughs> what is the one coming out? I'm doing a mini retirement course. So I did it three years ago and I just refilmed the whole thing. We built a new workbook. We built new spreadsheets and like expanded content. And it was really fun. I did a season on my podcast where I basically went back to the students who did the course three years ago and interviewed them. I was like, how did it go? What did you do? Like what went well, what didn't go well, like what challenges popped up. And so it was really fun to, to connect and I'm excited hopefully in a year or two to do another season of, of this batch of students. So many retirements are actually pretty predictable in kind of their flow chart. So there's like a season of hyper productivity. And then there's a season of tiredness where your body, like just physiologically, like the cortisol and the stress hormones start to fade away and you feel really tired and people start sleeping more and they start napping. But if you don't know that's going to happen, oftentimes you feel a lot of shame and guilt of like, why the heck did I quit my job? And like, now I'm not doing all the things I thought I was going to do. And I'm not as productive as I thought I was going to be. And then after people get through that, it's kind of like, and experimenting with the new normal phase. So some of it was that, and it's oftentimes in that that tired season because of this phenomenon that we talked about of like so many people getting more job offers. And so they're having this dysregulation. Other people are having this dysregulation and sending them job offers to try to close that loop. And somewhere in this, they're thinking, well, why did I give up all that income for this? Like, I'm not accomplishing what I want to be. I feel uncomfortable. I'm not, I haven't started really experimenting. I don't, 
I'm not getting all the benefits of being away from work yet because you have to earn that. You have to like work through it and try and grow and figure it out. So oftentimes people go back to work and kind of like pull the parachute and abandon ship during that season. But yeah, then on the other side, it's like people figure out just this next season of life. Oftentimes they start new projects. They get excited. They're actually rested. They come up with great routines. They start new businesses, like really cool things happen if they can kind of get through all of those seasons. How long do those seasons typically last? It depends on the person and just kind of their life. So productive season can last anywhere from like a month to six months. Depends how long that to-do list, you know, of like, oh, there's all the things we want to do. And it depends on how settled they are in their routine. Uh, If someone's like, I'm going to travel the globe for a year, then you kind of get into that, that routine versus if people are staying home. And then the tired season, it depends how burned out people are and how large their sleep debt is. But it might also last like five or six months where their body is like, it's just like, okay, I'm finally get to rest. I finally get to catch up on sleep. I finally get to decompress and it just absorbs it like a sponge, which is amazing and cool, except for the narrative that starts happening in people's heads. And that's the part that tricks, that kind of trips people up is the like, why am I not being productive? I thought, shoot, if I, if I wasn't working 40 hours a week, I thought surely I could get all of these things done. And yet now I'm like, I'm just tired and like, I don't feel motivated and I'm not being productive. Like, am I not a great person? Am I a lazy person? And it just starts to kind of unravel. And then they get this cool job offer and they go, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll just do that. Cause I don't know how to get myself out of this outside of a job rescuing me. I'm so glad that you're saying this because I've been through these phases a couple of times myself. And I knew that I, I mean, I guess I got to the other end unknowingly. Sometimes I totally went back to the job for that reason, but really interesting. Thanks for saying that because I just thought I was going, I mean, it was a phase obviously, but I didn't realize it was so predictable. Yeah. People, that's the other thing because so few people go through this. Like it's easy for me because I've, you know, I've seen a hundred people go through this process. So it's, it's really predictable. And I can kind of map it out for people like, here's exactly what's going to happen. But for the individual, if you don't know other people who've done this, you don't have other people in your life to have these conversations with, it feels entirely unique. And there's a lot of guilt of why am I experiencing this? Why am I not more happy? Why am I not more grateful? Like, why am I not appreciating this more? Like, why am I struggling? This must just be unique to me. It's not, it's, it's just, it's psychology and it's biology and it's just, you know, living in a human body and, and experiencing this stuff. So does this also apply to what, if you decide to take the leap and permanently retire? It, does oftentimes happen in permanent retirement. The only advantage people have in permanent retirement is one, they typically aren't or can't go back to work. So they just have to figure it out because like there's no going back. And two, all of their peers and all of their friends are going through the exact same thing at the exact same time. Husbands will be coming home from work. They'll be driving their wives crazy. They'll be around all the time. They won't have hobbies. They don't have friendships because they've been too busy working. And the wives can call each other up and be like, 
I have got to get him out of the house because he's driving me insane. He's on top of me all the time. I have no breathing room. He needs to get some friends (laughs) and they can like commiserate with each other. When, when you're doing this in your twenties or thirties or forties, like you're probably the only person in your peer group going through this and nobody understands and nobody has a drop of sympathy for you because to complain about being on a mini retirement is like the cardinal sin. You just look like a jackass. I love that. You actually sound like my mom, like you quoted her verbatim. (laughs) My parents are retired. So yes, clearly, you know what you're talking about on this one. That's hilarious. (laughs) How do people go about building that life? Do you have any advice to them? And also, is there a higher divorce rate amongst people or even death rate? Because I've heard retirement and death unfortunately mm-hmm. can be correlated. So I haven't seen any research on the death rate for early retirees, but once you don't have a job to distract you from your marriage problems, you actually have to deal with your marriage problems. And so marriages that were like workable now with all of this time. And I think people found it even during the pandemic, all of a sudden they were working from home And they weren't leaving each other for 40 hours a week. And they had to like deal with their crap. And there was a lot of people who got divorced during the pandemic because they realized, oh, this isn't actually working. It was only working because we were away from each other for so long. And so there's definitely that. We like to call it a growth opportunity with early retirement or mini retirements. And that like you, you have the chance to become much better people. And it's helpful if you lean into that opportunity and view it as a growth opportunity. That is so interesting and so well put. I like that you say that because it's not necessarily the cause. It's just that now you're confronted and have the time to sort out uh, other things that that you have been in denial potentially about. I could talk to you all afternoon. You are so (laughs) interesting. And I'm so behind all of your messages, especially like in this book. It's like all of the things I want to tell people when it comes to pursuing your dreams, but I can't fit it into like a sentence. So I, and that was my hope just to have a really compact, easy to read guidebook because when creators talk to other creators, like we're talking about these problems. And so to have one easy thing to pass off to a friend and be like, okay, she actually like explains this really well. <laughs> like just, just, just read this chapter or read this idea and kind of fast track your way through so much of the pain and heartache of like figuring it out on your own. If you buy the book, it's, it'll be available at like Target and Barnes and Noble and Amazon. Yeah. Just go on my site and fill out the little form. I have like it's like we put together like a hundred page creative entrepreneur journal and a free course for like clarifying your message. And so there's, there's lots of fun stuff there. Ooh, I love, I love freebies and goodies. Where can everyone find that? You just go to jillianjohnsrude.com. I'll probably have it like on the homepage. I had so much fun and I learned so much in that conversation. Jillian, a thousand thank yous for coming on the show. What did you think of the show? I want to hear from you as well. Please let us know in the comments below what you thought of this conversation and leave a review on iTunes for an opportunity to win $100 and be featured as our reviewer of the week. Next week's episode is going to be incredible. You're definitely going to want to tune in. As always, thank you so much for tuning in to Invested Success. Remember to smash that like button and subscribe wherever you happen to be listening. This is Elise Walsh with Invested Success. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week. Bye.